You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 28, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Wishing Stanley Cruzener a very happy birthday today. Oh, yeah, Stanley. Yeah, he's the best. American neurologist and biochemist. Okay, you all fail. We all fail. (laughs) Director of the Institute of Neurodegenerative Diseases at, at University of California. He discovered... Prions. Am I pronouncing that right? Steve, don't you study Prions. neurodegenerative diseases? Isn't that your whole thing? I, I thought that Thucydides he's found prions. <laughs> he's, the, he's, the, he's the discoverer of prions, and he won the Nobel Prize. The prions, that hybrid car, right? Ninety-seven. The hybrid. Yeah. Happy Did, birthday, uh, Stanley. Mad cow disease. I, okay. Yeah. Just on the off chance he's listening to the show. So. <laughs> on the off chance. I, I've noticed that you guys say your hellos in exactly the same way every week. I literally could just clip in your hellos from the previous week and nobody would notice. You literally oh, well, do, do do that when we say dirty things instead of <laughs> do what we do do again, Everybody switch let's your hello right now. Go ahead. Uh, next okay. week. Yeah, let's keep that it. in mind for next week. We have, um, we have some right, news items to get to. Hmm. We have an interview coming up with Diana Blaney from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who's going to give us an update on the Phoenix Mars lander. But so first, cool. some other news items. A group in Santa Fe is trying to get the city to ban Wi-Fi. Why, you might ask? Because Come they on. believe that they suffer from electrosensitivity. And the the Wi-Fi is causing them symptoms, and they think that it's discrimination uh, to have Wi-Fi flooding all of the public places in Santa Fe. I'm very hurt by the (laughs) Wi-Fi. They're they're claiming it's a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Their disability obviously being mental. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so so are (laughs) stairs. Yeah, but they're everywhere. Right, but well, you could actually force places to put in a ramp. Yeah, that is covered by the American with Disabilities Act. Can you so, force a place to carry a tinfoil oh. helmet? <laughs> that's that's a good point. I yeah, don't know. That is a good point. So all they need to do is go to their dentist and steal that that lead blanket they have when they take X-rays of your teeth. There you yes, go. The lead apron and just yeah. put it over their head. Electrosensitivity is, shall we say, a controversial illness. Uh, many people, like myself, believe that it is a fake illness. It doesn't really exist. Uh, meaning th- what people claim is that they can feel certain frequencies, certain like radio um, wave frequencies, and that it causes them a whole list of symptoms, you know, headaches and fatigue, uh, all sorts of things. But there's yet to be a, like a double-blinded study to actually prove that out. Right. In fact, there are lots of studies which show that it doesn't exist or that are all point into the, in the direction that this is what we call a psychogenic or a psychosomatic illness. Well, why should that stop a good lawsuit, though? What I found very interesting is that in the news coverage of the story, and, and including the, the officials of Santa Fe who were you know, sort of defending the rollout of, of more extensive Wi-Fi in Santa Fe, no one brought up the point that uh, this illness is fake. That this, these people don't have electrosensitivity. You Minor would think that that would be what the point is. They were arguing it more on legal grounds, and they were saying, well, we need Wi-Fi. It's like the legal issue is not the point here. The point here is that this doesn't exist. You, you don't have a right to demand that, there, that Wi-Fi 
be banned from the public because you have a psychosomatic illness. Now, there have been actually a number of studies uh, on electrosensitivity, and they all point in the same direction. For example, one study showed that people who claim to have electrosensitivity also have a much higher incidence of having other controversial diseases that are thought to be psychosomatic. Like what? Like chronic fatigue syndrome, for example. So that doesn't, that doesn't prove that electrosensitivity is psychosomatic, but it is suggestive. Fantasy-prone And by the way, since I threw out chronic fatigue syndrome, just to clarify, probably a very tiny percentage of people who have that diagnosis actually have chronic fatigue syndrome. They have a chronic viral infection causing chronic fatigue. Uh, but a lot of people claim to have that diagnosis when their symptoms are not due to, to a chronic infection. They're, they're probably due to other things, um, maybe some other physiological illness or maybe uh, a psychological illness like depression or anxiety, for example. Uh, there's another trial which showed that uh, the most effective treatment for electrosensitivity is cognitive and behavioral therapy, you know, psychological therapy, and that strongly suggests that it's a psychologically based illness. What there isn't, as Rebecca said, is there's no study which shows that there's any actual physiological mechanism for Wi-Fi or, or radio waves or whatever to cause these symptoms. There's, there's, these people do not suffer from anything demonstrable. Their list of symptoms is classically psychosomatic. I mean, and, and Yeah, like that guy, the guy Arthur Furstenberg, he said, uh, and I, I'm doing everything I can not to use my character voice here, I get chest pain and it doesn't go away right away. <laughs> All right, I can't help myself. You were only partially successful there, Jay. I get chest pain, and it doesn't go away right away. He he gets chest pain, and it doesn't go away right away. And that's yeah. that's his excuse for the Wi-Fi. Well, he illness. should see a cardiologist, you know, or yeah, a gastroenterologist, you know, depending on what the real problem is. Yeah, and or, that, or let's be clear, you know, I, I, I don't I don't think these people are just making this up just for the sake of a lawsuit or anything. I mean. The sad thing is that they really, really believe that invisible waves in the air are are harming them in some right. way, which is it's kind of sad. Yeah, I, they are usually sincere. I mean, I think that they're, but the what they typically do is they have a lot of vague symptoms. You know, what you might call the symptoms of life, the kind of symptoms that anybody can have, and they ascribe it to you know whatever is available. Um, often these you know hard to disprove vague entities. And it could be anything. It could be, you know, as I said, like chronic fatigue syndrome or, or chronic Lyme disease or irritable bowel syndrome, again, which probably really exists. But it's just, it's easy to, these people sort of attach their symptoms to these diagnoses. The symptoms tend to be vague and nonspecific, and they also tend to be ones that are very commonly uh, caused by anxiety or depression, or they are nonspecific symptoms of some other chronic disease. Like, for example, like I've had patients who believe they have chronic fatigue syndrome when in fact they have multiple sclerosis. I mean, they have a real disease causing chronic fatigue, but they prematurely settle on this vague diagnosis like chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, in, in some of these patients, you, they probably need actually more medical uh, diagnostic workup to figure out what's really going on. And others, I think, just probably have a, psych just have a psychogenic illness. Steve, they could be hypochondriacs too. I mean, it's all these different things. Well, that, 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 yeah, that term isn't really used anymore. I mean, we would just say that their symptoms are psychogenic or psychologically based. Oh, I see. Okay. Anyway, there's no medical scientific basis to ban Wi-Fi because of any health reasons. And that should be the focus of these news reports and, and also the, the legal defense against these accusations, not we need the Wi-Fi, you know, not, not the approach they are taking. 
I'd like to bring something else up, too. Does a, an electrical wire in your house produce more of an electromagnetic field than, than a Wi-Fi station? I don't know. I don't know. I'd say no. I'd say no just based on the, the range of each. High-tension wires near your house might, but just the wiring in your like a Those cause cancer. Yeah, in your house, I doubt it. Doesn't, doesn't this thing seem to be very easy to test, though? We could test this. We could put together a protocol in 15 yeah. minutes on well, this. Well, there, there was also another study, which I should point out, where they actually had um, people who claimed they have electrosensitivity and then controls who did not claim that they did, and then they, had, they, they either were or were not exposed to you know, various frequencies and intensities of electromagnetic radiation, and they couldn't tell. So yeah. even though they believe they can sense it, they couldn't sense it when blinded. So that sort of most basic study has been done, and it's been negative. Uh, well, let's move on. The, uh, several of our listeners in New Zealand sent us this next item. In New Zealand, the government is considering covering complementary and alternative medicine within their national health service. This, of course, would be a huge step backwards. I mean, it's basically would, uh, the, what's being proposed is that they start covering things like acupuncture and homeopathy, you know, things that basically don't work, that don't, most of which we've discussed in detail on the show before. The reason why these things are, the, such laws are counterproductive is because they're unnecessary. You know, anything that meets the requirements of scientific evidence can be used. You know, it's not like you have to carve out this special exception for something which is quote unquote alternative that by definition creates a double standard. And, and what's the purpose of the double standard? It is overtly to have a lower standard of care or no standard of care or a much lower or, again, non-existent threshold for evidence, for scientific evidence. So, but that's not how these things are proposed. You know, that's, what, that's in effect what they're doing, but that's never how these, these uh, proposals are pushed forward. It's always the, pub, the public wants this kind of stuff. They're very interested in it. You know, this is a new approach to, to health care, but not – we want to abolish the standard of care and rules of evidence and allow treatments which don't work and are not or, and or are not safe. Uh, but in effect, that's what it does. So I know that the New Zealand Skeptical Society is already on the job. And uh, for any other you know, New Zealand skeptics who are listening to this podcast who are not already involved with that, check that out. You know, get involved with your, your local skeptical group. Oftentimes, an email or letter-writing campaign is effective. I mean, your representatives need to know that, that there are citizens who do not want this, do not want the, the scientific standard of care to be eroded in their country. They think that the, that the public wants all this stuff because the only ones who are making any noise are those minority of ideologues and advocates who are trying to push it forward. They get all the attention because they make all the noise. So the, the skeptics have to make noise, too, in order to keep these things from going forward. Last week, we spoke about a 15-year-old boy who uh, had the audacity to publicly proclaim that the Church of Scientology was a cult. And for his efforts, he was arrested uh, under and what amounts to a local ordinance against insulting or threatening public speech. Uh, so we have a brief update on that. Yeah, basically he... Uh he got out of it. The uh, Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, who are uh, res- responsible for prosecuting criminal cases in England and Wales, they they were asked to comment on this. And uh, let's see here. They they basically said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote the guy, in consultation with the City of London Police, we were asked whether the sign was abusive or insulting. 
Our advice is that it is not abusive or insulting and there is no offensiveness as opposed to criticism, neither in the idea expressed nor in the mode of expression. So I don't think it actually went to court. I think it just went to more of a hearing and it was thrown out pretty much. Right. Good thing for him. You know, uh, if you could see some of the videos of of the actual event happening, which uh, a few listeners uh, emailed in, and it is pretty interesting. And the the police actually were not abusive. They they seemed to uh, handle the whole thing okay. And a few more notes of interest here. Actually, uh, Anonymous said that someone who spoke to Anonymous or a member of Anonymous said they see the police as referees at their protests, and like all good uh, referees, they need to understand the rules. And according to Anonymous, the police are bringing this uh, as to some sort of a test case so that everyone can understand what the rules actually are. Mm-hmm. So they suppose that this was a test case uh, to to bring an end to the question on whether or not what they were doing was wrong. Uh, so d- does the fact that it was the charges were dropped essentially mean that it's not a test case because it didn't go forward, or was that what they were hoping? Did they accomplish that with the charges being dropped? I, I'm not exactly sure if it was all premeditated to push the button to make this thing happen or not. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, this was a test case. You know, the, this this situation did set the standard on how it's going to be treated yeah. in the future. And so I know in the UK things are different than here in the United States. In the US. If the charges are dropped or a person's found not guilty on a technicality or whatever, that doesn't really set the precedent. That doesn't accomplish anything. You want it to go to a, a judge ruling. And, in fact, you want it to get to higher courts so that the, the higher the court, the, the greater the precedent. And, of course, the Supreme Court is the ultimate precedent. So often you know, challenges like this that, that are done deliberately uh, are done because you want a decision at a high court. In England, I know things work differently because they don't have the same kind of judicial, constitutional, uh, ultimate power you know, that uh, exists in the United States. In other words, legislators can make whatever law they want. Um, they're not, they don't have a Supreme Court that could say this is unconstitutional. So in, so, response, in response to the CPS, the London uh, police said, the CPS review of this case includes advice on what action or behavior at a demonstration might be considered to be threatening, abusive, or insulting, yeah. and the forces policing of future demonstrations will, ref- will, will reflect this advice. So okay. that, that's pretty conclusive. Yeah, so there is a precedent there, although it didn't get rid of the law, it just maybe weakened it a little bit or said, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of behavior is allowed within this law. I, I suspect at the next protest in London, every single kid there is going to have a sign with the word cult on it, to which I say, right. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Or, may, or maybe they might push the envelope a little bit further and see yeah. what they can get away with. Uh, like they might say they, they're a dirty cult. cult. Yeah. <laughs> the 15-year-old boy still remains unnamed, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but they did interview his mother in, the, in the, uh, this report, and she declared that this was a quote-unquote victory for free speech, which we agree. And she said, we're all incredibly proud of him. We advised him to take the placard down when we realized what was happening. But he said, no, it's my opinion, and I have a right to express it. Good for him. So there pretty brave and, and pretty bold for a 15-year-old kid. One more news item before we go on to uh, emails. Often on this podcast, we are highly critical of the mainstream media, who often does a terrible job of science reporting and you know, it, it anecdotally to us seems as if it's it's maybe getting worse, whether it's because we're paying more attention or, as many believe, because of the eroding of, of science journalism. So I was interested to see a uh, a published report 
in um, the Public Library of Science and Medicine, uh, which is an online peer-reviewed journal, uh, looking at mainstream news reporting of medical treatments. And what they found confirms what we, uh, at least within, the, within medical stories, what we have uh, subjectively perceived, that they, they reviewed 500 U.S. health news stories that were published or aired over a period of almost two years, and they found that 62 to 77% of the stories had major failings in the quality of reporting. For example, ABC World News was graded only 2 out of 10 for a TV report about a new test for prostate cancer. So 2 out of 10 sounds pretty bad. As, and that was, again, more the rule than the exception. So at least in this uh, sort of systematic, quantitative way, it seems that the quality of medical science news reporting does suck as bad as we thought it does. Uh, it's good to have yes. um, some empirical yeah, some you know, backing backup for that. on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they all get the autism story wrong, all of them. Not all of them, Evan. Time Magazine, I just blogged today about Time oh. Magazine cover story on the autism and vaccines issue. I should have uh, read your blog. Cover. And they got cover story, the truth about vaccines, got it exactly right. Ah, good. Awesome. How refreshing. I'm going to read that. Now. Unapologetically defensive of you know the, the safety of vaccines. They didn't pander at all to the anti-vaccinationist kooks. It, they did a very good job, but it's Time Magazine, you know. So, and just so I think the, the the high end news outlets like the New York Times and you know Time and Newsweek, they still have some quality science reporters on their staff, and they still will get a, can get a story like this correct. Okay, but ABC, NBC, um, CBS, and CNN still fail. So TV <laughs> TV in general is worse than written um, news. Yeah. Yeah, it's still a huge problem. I mean, sixty-two to seventy-seven percent. I mean, that still that still means you know whatever twenty-three percent did okay, you know, didn't have major failings in the quality of the reporting. So there's still some good out there, but it's there's still this constant din of terrible science news reporting that we're, we're having to deal with all the time. Well, let's move on to some questions and emails. First email comes from James Russell from Australia, and he writes, Hey guys, I've heard both Steve and Rebecca make this mistake now. Steve on the podcast a couple of times, and Rebecca in a blog entry. Tasmania is not in New Zealand. It's an Australian state, the small island down the bottom. So far, you've attributed both the world's oldest tree or shrub, whatever it turned out to be, and the Tasmanian devil to New Zealand. Not fair. Anyway, love the show and keep up the good work, James Russell. Uh, that is correct. We, I think we did... I specifically said last week when talking about the Tasmanian tiger that it lived in New Zealand, but it didn't. It has lived only in Tasmania, and Tasmania is a state of Australia. It is not part of New Zealand. Uh, there was another minor correction as well on that story, so I might as well read that. This one comes from Elliot Birch from Melbourne, Australia, who writes, Just wanted to write in about a minor error in your last podcast about the thylacine. That's the Tasmanian tiger. You said in your segment that it went extinct in 1933. In fact, it went extinct in the, in the wild in 1933, and the last thylacine died in captivity in 1936. And I double-checked, and that is correct. This, the uh, thylacine that was uh, held in captivity did die in September of 1936. Way to go, listeners. <laughs> Way to keep we us suck. honest. <laughs> it's good. Right. It's good. Yeah, you know, as we've discussed before, the, those kind of errors do creep in um, when you're producing this much, much content. It's going to happen. Even if we do our best to, to keep it to a minimum, but it's going to happen. And uh, also, the, it is definitely our position that, that 
you, the listener, should be as skeptical of everything that we say as everything else. You know, we do not accept anything we say on our on our authority. Check it out for yourself, and if we screw up, absolutely call us on it. Sometimes we just make stuff up to see if you're paying attention. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Oh yeah. And don't <laughs> don't call us on it. Email us on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but just be nice, please. The next email comes from Justin Holt from Braintree UK, and Justin writes, Hi, I have listened to all the shows, and I have a question. At heart, I am a skeptic, and I think, probably, that the vast majority of educated people are also privately of the same inclination. Your show gives a voice to a huge silent majority that can't be bothered to speak out or confront the status quo because it's just too much like hard work and will attract unwanted, passionate debate, especially so on the bigger topics. If you're out there doing it on podcast, then I don't need to as the voice of sanity is present somewhere, so thanks. I am torn, however, because if I am really honest about it, one key reason that I listen to your show is in the hope that Bigfoot rides into your studio on a unicorn and hijacks the microphone to announce the second coming of Elvis. Go that Bigfoot. That's awesome. Wow. My question, therefore, is what are you least skeptical about? If you had to list all the things that you were skeptical about 100%, what would be the last thing on the list? Mine, for instance, is telepathy. I think there might be specific possibilities there, even after you consider the evolutionary implications. Anyway, I must go. My wife is just about to shout up the stairs about the mess I left in the kitchen. Well, thanks, Justin. That's an interesting question. So of all the things that we're skeptical about, what are we the least skeptical about? What things do we think might actually turn out to be true at some point in time? Does anybody want to go first? That no. that psychic <laughs> butt reading that Sylvester Stallone's mother does. <laughs> yeah, the uh, ass whispering. I feel like yield- there's something to that. <laughs> you think that will yield some fruit, Rebecca? Uh, oh, God. I don't want to go there, actually. I'm sorry. Fruit of the loom. <laughs> Steve, why don't you warm us up with yours? All right, here we go. I would say my thing is alien visitation. Not that we're currently being visited by aliens, because I think there's no evidence for that. Uh, but it's possible. There's nothing impossible about an alien technological spacefaring race deciding to pay the Earth a visit. Uh, and they may, in fact, be here monitoring us, not wanting to interfere with our, our quote-unquote natural development. Um, I don't think that they're accidentally crashing into the desert or forgetting to turn their headlights off over major cities or you know, cutting up cows or anything stupid like that. But it could, you know, I wouldn't, I would believe it. It's totally plausible. Uh, I'm just waiting to see that the evidence that there actually are aliens, you know, visiting the Earth. And if the evidence were adequate uh, to the claim, I would, I would happily believe it. In fact, that's probably also the one thing that I hope does turn out to be true at some point uh, in my lifetime, just because it would be so interesting. I don't know how much of a cop-out that is. I mean, you, you're saying that you don't believe in it at all now, but if the evidence was there, then you would believe in it. Well, isn't that true of, of a lot of paranormal things? A yeah. Lot of, a lot of these things. Steve. No, but I think he's saying that that's got the best chance of there being solid evidence that could come up, right? Yes, and also when we say enough evidence to believe in it, you know, how skeptical you are of something is also a statement about how much evidence would you require. You know, I would require an awful lot of evidence to be convinced that homeopathy had any effect. I mean, much, much more evidence than it would take to convince me that we're being visited by aliens. Because I think homeopathy is impossible. 
And that and and I set the right. threshold extremely high, at least as high as all the reasons why I think it's not possible. Alien visitation is not impossible. It's just it's just unlikely, but it's not impossible. I think the thing that makes it unlikely is it it's my guess, if I had to guess to put my nickel down, I would say that the laws of the universe are such that it's just really hard to travel long distances, that we're probably never going to figure out a way to bypass the whole speed of light relativity thing. Unless you don't care how long, you know, if you, you don't care spending millennia traveling Yeah, but most, space. Pe- most, I would think that most people would care. You know, that, that, that it's at the very, it's not, I don't think interstellar travel is ever going to be easy or casual. And I don't think that's a matter of technology. I think that's just the physics of the universe that we live in. And maybe that's also a good thing. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the fact that that pretty much isolates us significantly from other civilizations that may be out there is probably a good thing. Because chances mm. are, if there were, you know, if you could, you know, warp around the galaxy or or have any kind of FTL drive or whatever where you could go faster than the speed of light, and there were, were a galactic civilization, our first contact with that civilization would be a very difficult thing for us because we would be infants. We would be utterly at the mercy. We'd be wolflings. Of, yeah, of the right. I mean, David Brin, I think, did come closest to getting it right in his conception. You know, we were just – we would be absolute infants and at the utter mercy of these other spacefaring races because they would be – thousands to millions of years more advanced than us technologically. And we, we would be making just our first tentative steps into space. So well, Worse than infants, we'd, we'd be bacteria to them. Yeah, we'd be an embryo. Yeah, so it, it may be a good thing that, that even advanced civilizations can't be zipping around the galaxy at their will. Right, but then that doesn't argue against you know, robotic probes. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's the, the famous question, you know, where are they, right? Yeah, because a, a race could create a a robotic interstellar probe, and that that machine could then make copies of itself, and then go and keep spreading in that way, so that you know, in it might take hundreds of thousands of years, but eventually it'd be able to explore every nook and cranny of the galaxy. Even if that would take hundreds of thousands of years, it probably should have happened already. If it's if spacefaring races crop up every now and then in our galaxy, why hasn't it? Why aren't there probes from some advanced civilization already at the Earth? That was the thought experiment that was done. But okay, blah blah blah. You know, there's lots of assumptions in there. <laughs> you guys finished nerding out on this yet? No. Yeah. So no. you got something, Rebecca? What are you least skeptical of? Sure. Uh, I'll go with. Uh, I'm going to go with Bigfoot because. Um, I think what? It's, yeah, yeah, Bigfoot riding in <laughs> on a unicorn. <laughs> oh, and I'm, I, I'm serious. Okay, maybe not so much riding the unicorn because I don't think Bigfoot would do that. Um, but <laughs> I do think that, yeah, uh, you know, it's a big planet. We haven't combed all of it. Maybe not Bigfoot, but, you know, in, within the realm of cryptozoology, mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's a fun idea and, you know, it's fun to think about. And it's also kind of within the realm of possibility that, you know, there could be things out there that we haven't found yet. And yeah, it's kind of absurd, like some of the claims they make and obviously all of the evidence they've presented thus far in favor of Bigfoot has been just redonkulous. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, 
it's possible, I guess. So I agree. I agree. Oh, the only the only qualifier I would add is I don't think that that a creature like Bigfoot is running around Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, that's you know? why I'm if, saying, yeah, yeah like it, within know. the if they realm exist, of they're in the deep jungles that we haven't, where no human foot has you know stepped yet. Right, right, right. Like the the idea of it, it could. It but could what are you talking it. about? Are we talking about like an insect, or are we talking about? No, I think that there could be a mammal somewhere out there that we haven't discovered yet. Uh, A mammal, certainly. Maybe one that's drastically different from anything else we've got walking around, you know? Yeah, it could happen. Okay. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying I'm not still highly skeptical of any claims that are going to come up about it. But, yeah, I could see it. I don't know I'm, what you want me to say, you know, but okay. Along those, I along, want you to say you're excited about the possibility of high five, high fiving Bigfoot. I am. Well, that is, always excites me. That would be awesome. <laughs> how about high fiving a dinosaur? You know, we talked a little bit last week about how it is impossible. Well, at least it's highly improbable that we would ever find enough intact DNA that has survived millions of years somehow, so mm. that we can so Evan. that we can re- yes. You can't high-five a dinosaur. Have you ever seen the T-Rex's tiny little arms? Yeah, but the, Who's he going to high-five? The velociraptor. Or the, yeah, <laughs> his you know, giant face would get in the way before you... He'll just be like wiggling his little stick arms. He could, <laughs> Going, are you just trying to taunt him? He will eat you. I, yeah. <laughs> You'd have to get on a ladder, too, Evan. My, it, it's not a good plan. My, my, no. my, point, my point was is that I think, perhaps, <laughs> uh, in my opinion, there... There, there may be a discovery someday in which we, in which, boy, just on the outside, outside, outside chances, there might be some sort of more intact piece or pieces of DNA that we can do something with and bring something back that was alive only millions of years ago. And I think yeah. I'm, cool. I'm kind of thinking that, that that's where I'm landing with this question. And uh, I, I kind of mm. would think that was, would be like so incredibly cool. Um, that uh, that that I kind of wish that uh, that kind of happens in our lifetime because that would just be like the most incredible scientific find perhaps of of all of, of all time. It'd be cool, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> Shut up, Steve! You yeah, didn't Steve. crap all over your thing. Yeah, I didn't crap all over your uh, you know your <laughs> yeah, alien visitation. Your stupid Star Trek wet dream. Very, Come on, very dismissive. Yep. <laughs> At least dinosaurs really existed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Aliens probably really existed. We just don't know. <laughs> Who's next? Who's next? One of them is, and this is going to make you guys get mad at me. I think it's possible that the U.S. government had more to do with 9-11 than we know. I'm not going down the whole loose change route. I'm just saying I think that the story that the public has is probably possibly not the whole story, the real true story, the, not, the real thing that the media fed us. What aspect of it do you think is missing? No, I mean, nothing about the, the, yes, the planes hit the Twin Towers, of course, and there's no rockets at the top of the tower making it fall faster and all that hubbub. And more, more uh, stuff behind the scenes, like, did they know something was, was potentially brewing? Did they, you know, what, what, what was their involvement before this that could have instigated it? That we don't know about, but Jay, we got to clarify this. We got to clarify. Yeah, because we're going to get a crap load of emails yeah. about this. I Are you saying it. the government may be covering up more of their own incompetence 
then well, have been made that, public? I always believe that. I, I always believe that. That's to me. That's fact. Anyway, I mean, that's of course they are. Of course they they cover up their own incompetence. Right. I'm saying that. In regards to the event of 9-11, the attacks that we had, that it's possible that the government had more to do with what happened than, than we were ever led on to know. DJ, you've got to clarify that. That's not, I'm not happy with that. <laughs> See, it's not happy, Jay. Well, Jay, like we instigated it in some way that was kind of kept on the down low or what? Are you saying I mean, someone in the administration perhaps had an inkling that this might occur? Well, I think we already know that. I think we already know that they – they were forewarned of the event to some degree, but they get hundreds, if not thousands, of these warnings well, all hi- the time. Right. But I, I also think I also think that there's a yeah. much bigger and global political machine happening where you know, and, and, and really anyone could take this to any level. Like, don't people? This is just I'm idly sitting here thinking, yeah, you know, it's possible. I wouldn't I wouldn't disbelieve that if more evidence came down the pike. I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that it can't be. I would think, okay, I'll listen to this. Are you talking about like like Bilderberg conspiracy things where it's like there's a group of rich men running the oh, world the sort of thing? The well, that wouldn't surprise me either. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's an echelon above, you know, what we would consider the president of the United States, the president of, or the, you know, the leader of this country or of that country. There could be, there could be a, another layer in there. I wouldn't doubt it. But I'm not. I don't think there's any proof to it. But I wouldn't be if if more proof came out. I like I like I said again. I would be. I'd listen to it. I'd be interested. I think it's possible because what were we talking about here? We're not talking about aliens coming from billions or millions of miles away. We're talking about people uh, being, yeah. you know, being conceited and power and money hungry and all that. Yeah, that's surround. We're surrounded by that all the time. So why why wouldn't it be in these other places? I think that's where that's where people like that flock to the real places of power. So I'm not surp- I wouldn't be surprised. I'm still not yeah. really sure what you're talking about, so I really don't know what to say to that. Yeah, it's hard for me to know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I think my problem with that kind of thinking is that it's always far more likely, in my opinion, that people are just incompetent rather than that there's this you know well-oiled conspiracy going on behind the scenes that's like successfully deceiving the public. That that I don't buy. You know, I think that it's just. Much easier just to say that they screwed up. You know, they didn't. They either ignored or didn't see the the signs. Nobody put it together. It totally took them by surprise. They got caught right. with their pants multiple down. failures on multiple. And then afterwards, right. they maybe tried to to cover up any any of their own incompetence. But a lot of it still got out anyway because they're not good at that either. <laughs> at, at even sure. covering stuff up like that. So that I think that's the the most likely interpretation of things. I don't think there's any secret, you know, society of people who are that good at keeping their machinations right. secret. That's right, especially if they were aliens in disguise and we don't know it. So yeah, right, the reptilians who ate who lived on small rodents. So so what, you're going to just dismiss <laughs> mine as impossible or let me ask you a question. Just let me ask one question to you, Steve. What if some evidence had come out just like the alien evidence. Because I'll tell you, man, you know, even if I saw a video of an alien vessel landing somewhere, that's not enough in today's day not and age for enough. me. Like, yeah, I, I would, agree. I've, I have seen videos of, of UFOs, of flying saucers. I don't buy them. They're just they're fakeable. They're, e- they're easily fakeable. Let's say that you know, we, we, some, some type of news came out where we found that our, there was a, a severe amount of corruption in a very high-level office in our government. Yeah, that points to 
foreign a foreign group that was influencing our government. You'd believe that, wouldn't you? Yeah, if sure. I mean, if it was broken by you know serious journalists who had uncovered a paper trail or had sources, and you know, yeah, you, yeah. You'd, okay. you'd still be skeptical of it, but you'd have to show the an appropriate level of evidence to justify whatever claim was being made, you know? All right, so there. I'm just saying that I think those things are possible. I think that stuff happens. Yeah. I think it's possible that that stuff happens. I've never seen any proof of it, but it's... Yeah. I throw that down. I just... But I think... The other thing I will add to my statement about incompetence before is that I do think that there are truly independent and motivated uh, press, mm-hmm. you know, journalists who would do everything they could to uncover such a story and bring it to the public. The, the people who maintain like the, the real big conspiracy theories always have to throw in there to, to uh, maintain their conspiracy that, oh, well, right. the press isn't really free. They're either on the take or they're intimid- intimidated or they know they'll get killed if they told what the real story was or whatever. And that I don't buy at all for one moment. The New York Times would be all over it if there was the slightest shred of evidence of any culpability of the Bush administration in 9-11. They would be – we would never stop reading about that in the New New York Times. Right. And I would be – really be very hard to convince me otherwise. Do you see that point, Jay? I see that point. The motivation is just too great. The rewards would be just too great for someone to to not pursue that. And I think there are some earnest journalists who would want to, you know – do Make the a right name. Thing. Talk, talk about making a name for yourself. Yeah, right. yeah. Wow. Be the Woodward and Bernstein. Pulitzer, hello. Well, Bob, what do you got? Give us some. Well, I got, I looked through scores of paranormal topics and I just couldn't bring myself to even mention one that I'm, that I'm less skeptical about. It just seems like I don't want to give it any, even that level of credence. Yeah, but are you limiting yourself to things that are paranormal? Because the three things you've come up with so far are not paranormal. Well, that, in my research for this, yeah, I was looking for pretty much paranormal stuff. That, that's what I thought the intent was, because uh, the intent was that you're already skeptical about it, and then, so, but what are you least skeptical of? So I can't even bring myself to. None of them really struck a chord with me, except the UFO one, and and for the reasons that you outlined, Steve. Yeah, I I believe that there are aliens out there, that there's life out there. Probably mostly bacterial, but it's some. I'm sure there's some intelligent civilizations, in, if, if not in our galaxy, God, then in some other galaxies, and they, they could potentially visit here or have visited here. They, there's no evidence to suggest that. But if it happened, I would be, of course, very excited. But I would say, well, it, yeah, I could imagine seeing the evidence to make me believe that. Whereas, say, for homeopathy, I can't even possibly imagine it. I mean, it's like an alternate universe where homeopathy w- could possibly be true. Um, but this, no. So I would have to, I'd have to, I guess I'd have to go with that if I had to pick one. Okay. Was that everybody? Did Adam yeah, did the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. dinosaurs. That's right. Mine was the most high plausible, five-y. but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you can't high-five a dinosaur, Evan. Get over it. Yes, you it's can. His tiny I, uh, little arms will never reach. Not all dinosaurs are 30 feet yeah, tall. Yeah, Rebecca, come on. <laughs> Come on, they're look. Come on, they came in all shapes and sizes. Like what about the sleeve stack? The sleeve like stack. Bother about the the any stack. other dinosaur. The sleeve. St- but of all the ones that we listed, I'd have to say that I would like the one. I would like Steve's alien, alien visit to come true. That's the coolest of all of them. Of course it is. All right, that, let's go. Uh, <laughs> let's go on to our interview. 
Joining us now is Diana Blaney. Diana, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Oh, I'm glad to be here. And Diana is a co-investigator for soil science and geological studies of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and she is involved in the the recent Phoenix mission to Mars. So, Diana, why don't you first just uh, give us an update on the Phoenix mission, what's it all about, and how's it doing? Well, it's it's a mi- mission to the Martian Arctic. We're going. We've landed in a place which is filled with landforms that have been basically shaped by ground ice in the area. And what we're trying to do is understand how the ice may have acted as a place to preserve soil chemistry and other materials, and then also understand how um, ice and weather moves around and affects the Arctic. Um, Mars, like the Earth, has a pretty big polar cap, but unlike the Earth, it's sometimes made out of CO2 ice in the wintertime, and it moves and basically controls the entire atmosphere and climate of Mars to some degree. So we're here both studying the soil chemistry, which is kind of what I'm interested in, looking for um, signs of habitability, is there any evidence of uh, liquid water having melted, and really trying to get to understand how the ground ice got there and how it's uh, interacted. Um, the ice has the potential to perhaps preserve um, organics that have um, that may be there on Mars, but it's going to take a, us a, a while to get down into the dirt and really understand what's going on there. Okay, and and just for for the background, the lander, the Phoenix lander, landed on May 25th. Right, we're now recording this on May 28th. So it's really only been there for a couple of days. How right. how did the landing go? The landing was wonderful. It went picture perfect. I mean, I don't. I think. I don't think anyone could have expected it to be any better than um, than it did. I mean, we got back. We've been do. We were doing things, uh, practicing what landing would be like, and all of our practices they were not as good as the uh, real thing. We got back more data and. Heard, heard, got more information from the spacecraft than we were really expecting in the beginning, and so we're still in the um, trying to figure out what's going on. We've started to get a little bit of color data back, which kind of is, is helping us figure out things, um, but we're still really in the early stages, just trying to get oriented and figure out what we're going to do for the next 90 days. Diana, was there a problem with the parachute? There was uh, one was released a little uh, like seven seconds late or something like that. Is- you know, I'm the wrong person to ask on that stuff. I haven't okay. I haven't really been following that. I've been I've been kind of working nights and just because of when Mars and the Earth are close together, when the science data has coming back, and I've just been so busy looking at pictures, I've not really been following a lot of the technical stuff. Okay. okay. Do, you, do you have an update, or are you aware of the situation with the robotic arm? Apparently they were having a little bit of difficulty unstowing the robotic arm. Is, is that working properly? Yeah, it's it's working properly. As, uh, and as far as we go, we started the unstow. We're doing, we kind of do everything in, in little steps, um, and we're waiting for data to come by. So, from the science team perspective, we're kind of moving 
full speed ahead. Uh, I think the problem was the because we're looking for organics, the um, arm has to be sterile, and so it's in a, it was in a bio, uh, in a kind of a bag to keep it um, from getting contaminated with stuff. And so there was initially some concern about how that bag had deployed, but um, when they looked at it closer. They think they're they're pretty good to go. So as I said, I don't know the details um, of exactly what's going, but from a science perspective, we're still we don't foresee any problems with the arms at this point. What's the delay? What's the del- the signal delay now between uh, Earth and Mars? What is it? Uh, how many how many light minutes away are we? I forget. Is it it's like, it's uh, much much less. It's it's in it's it's like I think it's something around close to ten. Ten minutes. Yeah, ten minutes. How much of what of what the lander is doing now is kind of like prepackaged commands that it does all by itself, and how much is you have to actually all right now do this, and then you have to wait for the delay, the twenty minute delay or whatever until you you can confirm it. We don't do anything with a what 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 would be called real time and stuff. It's all kind of prepackaged. What how how we run things is when the lander wakes up every mo- morning. We give it a list of activities it's supposed to do all day. And then in the late afternoon when the spacecraft, when the orbiter flies over, it sends all the data about what it does and then it comes back to Earth. That's, that's kind of, um, what I'm kind of waiting on for right now. It's that data comes back at night. So we're waiting for that data. But once we tell it what to do, we don't know until pretty much Ten hours later, what it what it's done and what it, okay. what how things happen, and so what we do is when that data comes back, we then un- try to understand what the spacecraft did and then try to move forward. Right now, we're in a because we're very very early in the mission. We're still checking out a lot of instruments and systems and stuff, and so we have a list of things that we're kind of going through step by step to get the the um, spacecraft fully up running tested um, stuff so and if if one thing kind of goes a little off track we'll we'll start something else and, and things but so far everything's just been going very very smoothly now just about the mission the uh, the Phoenix lander it's on is it at the north pole of Mars mm-hmm it's not at the North Pole. It's just it's kind of above the Arctic Circle. So where we've landed, there's permafrost and ground ice, but there's not a lot. There's not like ice on the surface that we can see at this point at this season. Yeah, I could see the the picture uh, that on the website, and it uh, it looks like soil. Yeah, so there's no like yeah. not a, there's not snow or ice. On there, okay. Is that what? What's the season on Mars right now? It's coming in to um, let's see. It's Alpha S ninety almost, which is it's almost it's almost full summer. Okay. It's coming into summer. It's late spring, early early summer type of there. Diana, is it true that you have to get your data collected in the next three months, and that's approximately when you're expected to perhaps lose some contact with the uh, with the Phoenix? Well, well. It, because we're a solar-powered mission, as we move out of summer into fall, we start getting less and less power. And so the, at the three-month mark is kind of when 
the power levels are going to start going down. We still expect the Phoenix Lander to be alive, but it's not going to have a huge amount of power to do things like digging and stuff. And so it will be probably doing more um, meteorology and imaging and stuff. Um, at some point, probably, and I'm, we're not exactly sure when, you'll start moving into hardcore winter where the sun won't be above the horizon and the CO2 ice cap will come down and cover it. Since we're a solar-powered mission, once we start getting to the point where we don't really have very much sunshine, the mission will, will end. Is there any possibility that next Martian spring it will thaw out and could be used again, or really that will be it? Well, we're going to try to see if we can communicate with it, but it's very unlikely, and it certainly wouldn't be able to be used like it is being now. There are things on the lander, such as batteries, which will have frozen hard and broken, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the electronics equipment just haven't been tested to survive dry ice, and so all it takes is one electronics board breaking and we won't yeah. and won't uh, but I mean it's still it, it, I think people still want to try to see if there's if it if it if on the off chance it did survive but it'll be it won't be a doing science again I see now you mentioned a couple of times that it, it has the potential to test the soil where it is for organics so just to be clear if there's life in the soil where the lander is right now this lander will detect it? It has the equipment to detect it? it I, I was real careful. I said organics and not, not life. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other places besides life you can get organics. You can get it from, like, meteorites in the, the sky, and, and there's, there's non-biological processes that can detect organics. And so you really need to have something pretty spectacular and pretty definitive to say you can detect life. But you can look at, is the place someplace where there are organics? Is there evidence that the water has been liquid? And and draw some some pretty good inferences on how habitable is. Could life Mm -hmm. survive? I I think uh, unless something... like really, really spectacular falls out where where there's not a lot of ambiguity and people can argue both ways. Scientists kind of tend to be pretty conservative about this stuff. Um, the other thing is we're we're having to be we're going to have to be very careful about interpreting any of our our organic results. Mm-hmm. Um, the spacecraft came from Earth, and the Earth has organics with it. So we have things like a, a blank that we brought from Earth to kind of do as a control and stuff. And so, so saying something directly about life is going to be take a long time, and we're going to have to be very cautious about. So you might find that there's water in, in the soil, that there's the raw materials for life in an environment where life could potentially survive, but you're probably not going to find definitive evidence that life is actually existing either now or in the past on Mars with the kind of analysis you're doing. Correct. Okay, so we're not, in the next three months, we're not going to see headlines, life discovered on Mars. I would be very cautious about it, say, saying that that's going to happen. Um, I mean, 
everyone always wants to, to discover stuff, and it's not outside the realm if we got something that was just so spectacular. Mm-hmm. But given what most people think, the environment and climate and how these processes work, most people, when they talk about life on Mars, are talking about microbial life. And mm-hmm. I mean, if you found a dinosaur bone, you, but no one who really expects that kind of discovery. Mm-hmm. It's really going to take a lot of lines of evidence and stuff. And probably if we find something that's very suggestive, it would probably take a, another mission specifically geared for detecting life to really confirm things. But you have to keep in mind that no one has found any organics on Mars before. Mm-hmm. In a lot of places, the soil is very hostile to any kind of organic matter, even from comets and and asteroids hitting Mars, the organics are broken down by um, chemicals in the soil. And so what we're, what we're trying to do is test the uh, hypothesis that if, if organics are there, it can be preserved in the ice, which is protected from the really harsh chemistries of the soil. Is part of the goal of, this, of the soil science of this mission to uh, test how um, habitable Mars might be for future human missions to Mars, or is that not one of the missions here? There, there, there is some interest in that. A lot of, a couple of the interests, especially the Mecca in, instrument, was actually selected in part with getting information for future manned exploration. For instance, we're, we're going to make the first ever measurement of the pH of the Martian soil and see if it's acid or or not, and that's very important from an astronaut health point of view, because if you're coming back into your um, module and you're tracking dust, if it reacts with water and the and the, the stuff in the in your environment chamber and turns into something that's very acidic and corrosive, you really want to know that. So there's a lot of basic information about the soil that we're going to get for the first time ever. This is the first time we'll have done a both a wet chemistry experiment on Mars where we're looking at um, salts and pH and electroconductivity of the soil when it's mixed with water, and also the first time where we've done a depth profile of the soil and hooked it up to the TIGA instrument where we baked the material out and looked at the gases coming out and the compounds coming out, searching for organics and water and CO2 from carbonates and SO2 from sulfates. And then one of the things that I'm very interested in is looking at, as we use the arm to dig through the polygons, looking at at the soil horizons and seeing if there's evidence that there's been liquid water moving salts and compounds through the soils to different layers. Now, what are the polygons? They're called ice wedge polygons, and they're caused by differential um, expansion and contraction of the ground with ground ice. The kind that most people are familiar with, if you've ever seen a, a, a mud puddle dry out and you look at the mud puddle and you see cracks and, and then flat places in between them, mm-hmm. those, are, those are also polygons. And so when things change their volume, it induce stress, and to relieve the stress, you form cracks. And so as permafrost expands and contracts with 
temperature season and also with potentially with uh, liquid water more meat falling down into cracks, you form similar um, landforms in the Canadian Arctic and Antarctica, places like that. And so we've landed at a place where there's ground ice somewhere in the few to tens of centimeters from the surface. And that's, we're going to be digging down into that ice. Diana, is there another name for the soil on Mars? It seems to me that even the word soil is maybe a, maybe a bit of a misnomer because uh, the soil on the Earth, not only does it have the broken down rocks and, and the minerals and things, but it's got the, the humus, I think it's called, the, the, the organic matter, which you know maybe there is minute amounts of organic matter somewhere on Mars, but it's really not a major component of the soil. Um, do they call it, do they have another name for it? Is it really appropriate to call it soil? It, it is technically not appropriate to call it soil. It's, the technical name is regolith, which oh, is... like the uh, moon, then. All right. Yeah, it's like the moon. Most people who study Mars say soil when, when talking to the general public just because regolith is kind of jargony. But, but te- you're right. Technically speaking, it's regolith, not soil. But regolith sounds cooler, though, I think. Yeah, regolith sounds cooler. And, yeah. It has to do with fine-grained particulates produced through non-organic processes. On the moon, it's primarily um, impact cratering and micro uh, meteorites. That process plays a lot of role on Mars, too, but you also have uh, aeolian wind-produced materials. But you also will find people talking about the regolith of the icy satellites of um, Jupiter with Europa and Ganymede, which are, are ice okay. particles and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Diana, you're going to be busy as heck for the next three months. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I packed up and moved from Pasadena to Tucson for, to do this. So you're just going to be living there, just doing this nonstop for every Correct. moment you have the mission. And, and it's just every day you're waiting for the data dump for that day? Yep, pretty much. And then, then trying to figure out what things mean and interpreting it. Mars's day is about 40 minutes longer than the Earth. So over the course of about a month, my work day rotates around the clock. So we're kind of wow. every time. every day we're in a different time zone. Mm-hmm. Wow! So right now we're we're going into working nights and stuff for the next couple of weeks. Diana, I assume you've been working on this project of some in some manner for quite some time, months or maybe years. Years. Can you even describe the feeling when you finally got the word that the that the lander was? intact on the planet and didn't disappear or or have a metric problem or anything that that feeling it must have been amazing to think wow we're, we're here and it's okay and now i could do w- real work yeah I, I was part of the 98 mission which we didn't land successfully on and, and so were a lot of people on this team and it's kind of like this huge kind of weight not really things sort of kind of melted away, and it's just like a lightening of the spirit um, and and how you were feeling. It's like I hadn't really realized how anxious and nervous I was about the landing until after we had successfully landed and we started getting information back, and I and I realized it's it's better than than I really had anticipated. You kind of steel yourself in these situations to be prepared for the worst, and then right. 
He just very, very happy. Was the 98 mission the one that had a miscalculation of some sort and that took it off course? Well, that was for the Mars um, Climate Orbiter. It was unclear what happened exactly with the Mars Polar Lander, but it probably had something to do with the landing system. And because we were using the same landing system, we ended up doing Mm. a lot of tests to really understand what was going on and possible causes. But... I don't think the real the the final cause they had had a total smoking gun. It had to be this. There were a lot of poss- There were several possibilities. Well, Diana, congratulations on a successful landing, and good luck. And uh, perhaps in three months from now, we can get you back on the show to talk to you about what you found. I would love to. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thank, Thank you. Bye bye. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is fiction. Are you guys ready? See. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Item number one. A new study shows that public schools are just as effective as private schools at teaching math skills. Item number two. Researchers have developed the first smell map describing which chemical structures result in which smell sensations. And item number three, Yale computer scientists have devised an email algorithm that they claim will eliminate, if fully implemented, 98% of all spam. Evan, go first. first one is that uh, this new study showing public schools are just as effective as private schools teaching math skills. Oh, I recall us talking in a, in a more general sense about this on a prior podcast. So that's interesting. The second one, the smell map uh, with chemical structures result in smell sensations. Something's not right there. Something stinks. <laughs> and uh, the third one, Yale computer scientists, the email algorithm, 98% of all spam. Boy, boy, if they can get that to market soon, they'll be, they'll be set for life. Describing the chemical structures result in the smell sensations. Really, I don't... Hmm. Is that possible? I don't know. I, where is the... All right, I'll, I'll go with my senses and say that the uh, the smell map, I think that one is incorrect. Something's not quite right there. Okay, Rebecca? Uh, the smell map thing, that I think that sounds believable because um, there's got to be some chemicals that always add up to a certain smell, and it's, I think it's possible to map those out. And I think that's possible. Public schools being just as effective as private schools. Uh, I went to public school, and I think that it's uh, just as good as the other three schools. So um, I think uh, I think that's that's probably true too. Um, that was a joke, by the way. You all missed it. It's fine. Yeah, no, no, we're, not, uh, we're just not, we're just trying not to give anything away. <laughs> It wasn't, wasn't funny. And um, an email algorithm that eliminates spam. I'm going to say that that is the fiction because I believe that spam is actually a universal constant. I think that much like the speed of light, spam is... Or an abundance of hype. I, a law of the it's, universe? It's a law. Yeah, it's it's immutable. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll go with that. Spam is fiction. Okay, Bob. Okay, the uh, public schools just as effective at teaching math as private. Um, that sounds that sounds plausible. I, I would think that the quality of the teacher 
it's just such a it's such a big variable that it would it would vary more than the uh, the inherent better quality of the private school. Three, the computer scientist. I've read about certain algorithms to reduce spam that the few that I've read about, not recently, but I have read about some ideas that seem promising. And I think the key word here, though, I think you, Steve's trying to throw us off, uh, is if fully implemented. Fully implementing it might be not practical, but if it could be fully imp- implemented, then maybe they could indeed get 98%, uh, although I suspect that probably wouldn't be practical to do that. So I'm going to say that's science as well. The second one, there's something, yeah, there's something wrong with the second one about the uh, the smell map. I suspect that the um, the interactions between the the combinations of the various molecules would make it much more complex than you would think, because uh, those combinations would I, I think would produce a unique smell, and all those combinations. Oh my God, how many? You know, what are the combinations of permutations of all the different uh, things that we could smell, all the different molecules and things? Um, so I would say that is fiction. Okay, Jay. You know what's funny is I'm I'm actually at this point leaning more towards the math teaching because I I've been to both private and public schools and uh, in my experience the private school the teachers were so insanely better than the the public schools for many many reasons and I hope I'm not offending a lot of people out there but they just they're higher paid teachers that and the school demands more out of them and in my personal experience which is anecdotal the teachers were better in private school. But out of all the things that can be taught, math, I don't know. I guess it doesn't matter. I guess a good teacher is a good teacher. I don't know if it, because it's math. The researchers who developed the first smell map, that is such a, a broad statement to me. That, that could mean a lot of different things. And that's why this one is also troubling me because there, there's tons of things in here that could be tweaked or whatever. There's just not enough information here for me to make a decision on that one. I think that one's a distinct possibility. Yeah, and the Yale computer scientist with the 98, removing 98 percent of spam sure that seems so totally plausible so between one and two and bob liked number two and bob has been doing pretty poorly overall this year <laughs> and and uh, so jupiter is aligned with he was the sole winner one. last week though well good for him all right so pick jay i'll pick number one as the fake the, the private public school thing okay yeah. now we are all over the board you are all over the map so let me take them in order Number one, a new study shows that public schools are just as effective as private schools at teaching math skills, and that is science. Ha ha, Jay. <laughs> well, that's because math is math, right? I mean, wow. Well, it's it. How do you interpret this? Is is one thing. I mean, I'm familiar with, of course, with Jay's personal experience, and and because uh, I've, I've went to the same public and private schools as Jay did, and yeah, I mean, cer- certain private private schools can be excellent, very have a lot of quality control. Some public schools could be excellent. There's lots of variability in both. Actually, Jay, sometimes public school, private schools pay less than public schools because private schools don't have the same state-demanded requirements uh, for certification, et cetera. Hmm, that's a good so point. You, anyone like right out of college can teach in a private school but would then have – but not necessarily in a public school. Uh, and there are some private schools which are terrible. I mean they're – also, a lot of private schools are private because they want to teach religion. Yep, that's true. So, too. there's a lot of variability, but on average, if you look at this, was a study that w- that was performed uh, looking at a longitudinal study of 10,000 students in private and public school, and they found uh, no difference in their math abilities over time. So they said could, they couldn't d- detect any significant difference between public and private education in math. 
this is important to a lot of just uh, political debates about, you know, should education efforts include, for example, vouchers, vouchers. so that mm-hmm. yeah, so that parents could uh, basically get a kickback from the state to to help them pay for a private school on the assumption that private schools do a better job than public schools do, and maybe that is not such a good assumption, for example. Well, in the case of math, at least. Yeah, this is got to keep in mind this what this study is showing. It's it is a very limited slice of this bigger question, but it does add to you know those who are making the case for uh, for public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one was researchers have developed the first smell map describing which chemical structures result in which smell sensations, and that one is also science. Ha wow. ha! Yay! <laughs> this surprised me a little bit too, and they did the the. Uh, the headline is Wiseman Institute scientists produced the first smell map. That's what they're calling it, a smell map. And I was surprised the same way you were, Bob. Because I thought there would be so many different chemical permutations that it would be an, an, a Herculean task, as they say. And it was a huge task. Do I get but extra credit? What they found was uh, – this is what they did. So to create their map, they began with 250 odorants and generated for each a list of about 1,600 chemical characteristics. And then they – Cross-reference those with the um, you could you could actually look and see like what kind of effect they have uh, neurologically, and then they created a map of the chemical structures that actually were active, and it turned and they were actually able to pare the list down to about forty, so forty specific uh, chemical traits that were uh, important in terms of generating a sensation of smell. And then uh, they were able to then you know, map those to the smells that they produced. My God, do you know what this is? Do you know what this means? This is the, the precursor to Professor Farnsworth's smelloscope. Oh, yeah. The smelloscope, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so as they continue to flesh this out, I mean, th- this could be extremely useful. I mean, you can actually, when you if you wanted to design, for example, a... Uh, an odorant for a perfume or for food or whatever for a friend you could actually choose the chemical structures that you want in order to produce you know basically custom design and an odor knowing ahead of time what chemical structures you need jay can finally get that cologne that smells like bacon he's been after for oh some. yeah right I mean, you got you can't believe what I got to do just to smell like it now at home. It's pretty they disgusting. also find <laughs> that these are very consistent not only across individuals but across species which it also makes sense since we're evolutionarily related. There, there was some debate about whether or not, you know, how subjective this, this experience of smell was. And maybe everyone experienced an odor individually. But it turns out that the same chemical structures result in the same sort of neurological response. So it's, it's, it's smell, the sensation of smell is, uh, appears to be universal. So this makes me think of two questions. One is, would they be able to make like an anti-smell thing that cancel out a smell, or does it not? Would it not work that way? No, not. It's not I don't like, think uh, the sensation of odor works that way. I don't think that no. two stimulating two like different types of smell receptors would cancel each other out. Hmm. As far as I know, I don't think it doesn't work that no, way. No, I don't it's, think so. It's not like sounds. We can have sound waves canceling out other sound waves. What does happen yeah, is not- that if you stimulate the same receptor olfactory receptor over and over again it just it just stops responding after a while yeah that that's was why my I, second question why does that happen yeah that's what, yeah the when the monkey house stops smelling so bad <laughs> jay that's how all if you think about it that's how 
all the human senses work. It's not your senses aren't telling you oh, what's cool out there. It's telling you what's new out mm. there. Yeah. So that that that's how that's how they work. So like when you put on a shirt, your your skin can can feel the shirt, but after just a very short period of time, you cannot feel your shirt at all anymore. Otherwise, we we'd be constantly plagued with all these sensations. Your eyes work the same way. If you could perfectly focus your eyes on one thing and not move your eyes at all, the um, the rods and cones would uh, would habituate to it, and you wouldn't see anymore. So your but eyes let's are, be, let's be are clear. jostling. See, you so know, good. The reason why Jay can't feel his shirt right now is because he's a redneck and he. Uh, he podcasts without one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not wearing a shirt right now. But Bob, to be clear, there are different mechanisms for all those examples that you gave, and they're not all habituation of the same type. For the tactile sensation, that's more of a matter of attention. You're just not attending to those sensations. For the vision, that's chemical. Those chemicals get used up, and 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 therefore the the rods and the cones are unable to generate. A signal anymore, right. so you have well, to. I didn't, but yeah, but I didn't say the mechanism was the same. But the end result is the same. The end result is similar, but it, they're actually not the same. You know, one is that these signals are never being generated in the eye. The other one is that your brain is just not paying attention to it. And with odor, it's actually more. It's closer to the eye than the than the sensation of touch. It's that those receptors just don't generate as much of a signal anymore. It's not just that you're not attending to it. Well, I think he means that the end result is the same, and that our perception of it is the same. Like we aren't going nuts because those things are constantly. I, I agree, us. but I do think that it's a meaningful distinction to make. An example I read in, in history, um, in whatever I don't know, the eighteen hundreds or when people when bathing just was not a priority for for people uh, in America. I'm not talking, you know. People took France their annual bath when they needed yeah, their Right. It was pre- yeah, hygiene was pretty nasty. And, and people would say, well, how could they live amongst each other with such smells? And the idea was that, yeah, you become inured to it. You, yeah. you don't really notice it anymore. And people, people would like, go, away on vac- go away, whatever, away from their town, away from people, and come back and be like, oh, my God, everybody <laughs> smells. And then, of course, they would – and then the smell would go away because you're, you become used to it again. Was it, right. That's just some anecdotal stupid story I remember right. reading. Which all means that, number three, Yale computer scientists have devised an email algorithm that they claim will eliminate, if fully implemented, 98% of all spam, is fiction. I did add the if fully implemented to give it a ring of plausibility. Uh, I did catch Bob in that phrase. But uh, this is based on a real news story. Uh, Some Yale computer scientists have developed a new computer algorithm, but it has nothing to do with spam. This is what they they looked at was combining the uh, peer-to-peer networks and the traditional, the way that the traditional ISPs deliver information to to customers. The goal of which is if they, they're, what they're calling it this new type of protocol P4P, which involves like a collaboration or a cooperation between the ISP and peer-to-peer networks. Right now, ISPs and peer-to-peer networks are pretty much separate. They do their own thing. Uh, and in fact, the ISPs are trying to find ways, if anything, to limit peer-to-peer because that's an increasing percentage of, of bandwidth that's being used on the internet. It's up to about 70% now is being used by peer-to-peer networks. But if they actually just collaborate with them in this new P4P algorithm, it actually would deliver content and data much more efficiently and at lower cost for the ISPs. Uh, so they're proposing this as a way to actually improve the efficiency of uh, data transmission across the Internet. 
And uh, we'll cool. link to the article that gets in more into the nitty-gritty details about exactly what that means. I think the point here, though, is that I won. Yes, of course. Well, that's Evan the only won, point too. That <laughs> nope, no, I nope, just, just – Rebecca by herself. Uh, Bob, Bob and, and Devin went for the smell yep. map, and Jay, you were by yourself with the private schools. Right. Well, I congratulations, awesome. Rebecca. Thank you, Jay. Well done. Dinosaurs. <laughs> Jay, do you have a quote for us? Why do you always ask? I got a quote. Because <laughs> you, you almost know. always have a quote. <laughs> I got a quote. Now I, I thought I thought this over, uh-huh. and someone emailed in in my defense and said that I, basically I should pick. I should be able to pick if I want to announce the person before that person was wrong. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying you should that a, you should a very mutiny, astute mutiny against the host person emailed in and, and said, you know, it's Jay's Jay's piece. He he puts the time in. You should pick it. It's you know, Jay Jay puts the seconds in. So you're right. Uh huh. And this is, by the way, a very serious issue. <laughs> very serious. Because my argument is, isn't it more interesting to know who? said the quote while you're hearing it than to have to retrofit the quote onto the person afterwards like oh that guy said it you could be like yes you know what's no. more interesting for you to shut up and do it although the majority of our listeners the people we do this for disagree yeah but we don't there wasn't 40,000 people didn't write in we had a, what, a couple hundred people it was not a scientific it wasn't random sample. it was self-selected it was self-selected but that way, that means that the people who <laughs> not care to perpetuate the most about this ridiculous this conversation were the ones who bothered to vote. Look, God, men, I'll do what the big guy says, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> all right, all right, here we go. You're quoting. Just go. The high-minded man must care more for the truth than for what people think. Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> Aristotle. Who's the Aristotle. Guy? I always start laughing, like, at the same point, about a second before you actually say it. (laughs) Aristotle was actually a cool dude. Aristotle. Everybody should learn more about it. Isn't that pronounced Aristotle? (laughs) Aristotle? He was a student of Socrates, wasn't he? (laughs) Who drank the hemlock? Plato. Uh, Plato. That's fantastic. Uh, Rebecca, hey, you have an announcement for us. I do. <laughs> I'm so glad we all brought it up at once. Yes. So uh, there's a big microbiology conference going on here in Boston. June the 3rd is uh, coming up. It's this Tuesday. Uh, apparently, we have a lot of microbiologists listening to the SGU. Oh, very small. And very because small. of that, we are having a little get-together. And you don't have to be a microbiologist to attend but it is going to be in Boston uh, at the Legal Seafoods on the waterfront, 6.30 p.m., Tuesday, June 3rd. Be there. That's all. Cool. Cool. Excellent. Informal. Just hanging out, drinking, getting food. Talking about microbiology. Steve, you had an announcement. Well, yeah. I wanted to point out that because we have our new logo, we've completely redone our Cafe Press shop. Ooh. With with the new logo and also with a lot of help from an insider. Mally's been helping us out. He actually works for Cafe Press and he's completely set up our shop for us and you know we've been giving him the logos to work with. So there's a a a bunch of new merchandise with the new SGU logo on it and we will be expanding the merchandise over time as well. So check back for new stuff. Uh so if you want if you're dying to be the first one to get a t-shirt with the new SGU logo on it Go to Cafe Press now, and again, we do have the link on our website. Mm-hmm. And if you have any suggestions, if you would like 
something specific on a T-shirt with the SGU logo. Just give us an email because we can make yeah. it. That's the beauty of the whole situation at Cafe Press. Thank you all again for joining me. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Shirley. Had a good mm-hmm. time? <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.